Um, it's so good to uh, welcome Adrian this morning, isn't it? It's really good to have him with us. Um, so good of him to come and uh, speak to us this morning. I just wanted to really just share some, a couple of things, really. I'm sure Adrian shared this before, but uh, we all know AC and love AC, don't we? Uh, who is my little brother, but Adrian was um, speaking at North um, and invited people to come forward for prayer, which is when AC's eye was healed, which was an incredible, yeah, it was incredible. God just moved in that way. And now AC has peripheral vision, so I can't hit him on one side without him seeing it coming, which is what I spent my childhood doing. Um, um, but it's really good to have Adrian with us. So that's my one good connection with Adrian. I always have really good memories, but um, Adrian asked if, you know, shared obviously and said that he had dates if people would like to book him. And I was like, man, it'd be so good to have him. And especially if you remember church as part of our uh, foundation series. So I've kind of come up here to speak on behalf of us as a church to say this is a foundational block for the next at least 30 years. And the moment we stop doing this, our church dies, right? So uh, we become uh, a church that just gradually declines. And um, so we lay it as a foundational block this morning, but I don't want to say any more other than to welcome Adrian. And please give him a massive welcome. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Thanks very much. Great. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for the chance just to share a little bit then in the interview. Uh, thank you for your welcome. You may remember that you kindly invited me to come to your carol service in December 2019. And we had, I think, more than 400 people here and the silver band. It was a great evening. I thoroughly enjoyed it and really delighted to be invited back. So I thought I'd just begin by telling you a funny story. Would that be okay if I... I thought it might be all right, yeah. Um, I told this uh, woman uh, near where we live that Julia and I have got four daughters. She said, oh, she said, that'll be pricey. <laughs> I said, pardon? She said, that'll be pricey. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, did you know that the average cost of a wedding in the UK... <laughs> is now 15,000 pounds. She said, factoring in inflation, she said. Factoring in inflation, she said, that means you're probably going to have to stump up 70,000 quid to marry them all off. I said, I haven't got 70,000 quid. She said, well, she said, you're going to have to rob a bank. I said, I can't rob a bank. I'm a Christian. She said, oh, how very inconvenient. <laughs> but actually, we then went on to have what turned out to be really quite a good conversation where I was able to tell her that actually when I put my trust in Christ, it was the most fantastic, it was the most brilliant experience for me. And I began to tell her about the benefits that I received when I put my trust in Christ. And I wonder whether maybe this morning we could look at some of these benefits. Maybe we could look actually at some of the fringe benefits that you and I receive when we share the good news about Jesus with other people. Now, obviously, we don't share the good news about Jesus with other people for our benefits, but it just so happens there actually are some 
fringe, incremental benefits to us when we do. So the more that we focus on unconvinced, on unreached people, let's look this morning at five benefits. Five benefits that we receive. Benefit number one then, folks, there'll be more joy in our lives. I was talking to a a woman in our church in London. She's called Heather. And uh, Heather's friends with these two sisters. They're called Sarah and Anna. Heather invites these two sisters, neither of whom would have called themselves Christians, didn't go to church. Um, Heather in our church invites these two sisters along to our Alpha launch party, launching the Alpha course where you can find out more about the Christian faith. So that's the invitation. Following day, Sarah, the older of the two sisters, she's a trainee lawyer, her boss says to her, tomorrow, Sarah, I want you to take these bits of paper to the courthouse. Now, that is a fairly simple task. It's taking some bits of paper from A to B. But her boss explains, this particular trial cannot start until these documents arrive at the courthouse. So there's a little bit of pressure. And so she thinks, don't panic, Sarah thinks. I will simply set my alarm earlier than I normally would. In fact, she sets herself two alarms. Sarah even arranges for her friend to phone her just in case her two alarms fail. Following morning, everything's cool. She gets up on time. She gets to the end of her road. And she finds when she gets to the end of her road that overnight, the council have coned off the bus lane. There's a sign-up saying they're replacing the Victorian sewers. There won't be any buses running on the main road that day. She thinks, don't panic. I'll simply walk to the underground train station. She walks to the underground train station. When she gets there, the gates are locked. They're padlocked. There's a whiteboard sign-up saying, London Underground regrets to inform you the Northern Line is part suspended today. She thinks, don't panic. I'll simply walk to the Overland train station. It's quite a long walk. She walks to the Overland train station. When she arrives there, her heart sinks. People are queuing to get in to the Overland train station. So she queues through the ticket barrier. She queues down the steps to the platform. Even when she's on the platform, she has to queue on the platform. As the trains are arriving, she's getting closer and closer until eventually she does get all the way to the front of the queue. And she's definitely going to get on the next train. She looks up at the board to see when the next train is due to arrive. And she thinks to herself, I don't know whether a train arriving here at that time is going to get these bits of paper to the court before the start of the trial, and she starts to get really worried. And then she thinks, what would my Christian friend Heather do? What would Heather do if Heather were in this situation? She thinks Heather would pray to God. Now, Sarah has never prayed a prayer to God as an adult ever before, but she thinks, do you know what? I'm pretty stuck here. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray to God. So not out loud on the, on the station platform, hundreds of people, but just in her mind, she prays, hello, God. Uh, it's me. Yes, Sarah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd be really grateful, God, if you could help me out because right now 
I really need to get these papers to the courthouse before the advertised start time of the trial. I can't particularly see, God, how right now. I can't particularly see how you'd do that. But if you could possibly help me out, I'd be really grateful. So uh, thank you very much. Um, Yours sincerely, (laughs) over and out, amen, she prays. She opens her eyes. And the man who's standing next to her on the platform is the barrister. The man who she's supposed to give the papers to at the courthouse is standing next to her on the platform. And she's so shocked that she doesn't actually say anything. She just takes the papers and hands them over. Now, the barrister's standing there on the platform waiting for the train, gets given these bits of paper, immediately recognizes the case. It's his first case of the morning. And he says, oh, he says, what a marvelous service. I'm really very impressed. This is really rather good. Now I can prepare on the train. This is really rather good. Thank you very much. Do pass on my thanks to the partners of your firm. This is really rather good. So the train arrives, the barrister gets on the train, and Sarah's left there thinking, now come on, come on, what are the chances? I mean, actually, what are the chances? What are the chances, the first time that I ever pray a prayer to God as an adult, that at that moment, the person, the person on earth who could most easily have solved my problem at that moment would, by chance, happen to be standing right next to me at the crucial moment. What are the chances of that? What are the chances? So you might not be surprised to know that. Sarah turned up at the Alpha launch, and her sister Anna turned up. And anyway, they came back for week one, and they came on week two, and they came on week three, and they came the whole course, and then we had a weekend away uh, where we looked at the whole person and work of the Holy Spirit, and they came on that too. And on that weekend, on the Saturday night, both Sarah and her sister Anna both made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Since then, they've both been baptized, and they both actually ended up marrying young men in our church. They didn't marry the same young man. That would be a bizarre end to the story. Married different young men. But it was amazing. And I I went back to Heather. Do you remember Heather at the start of the story? She's the one who invited these two sisters along in the first place. And I said, hey, it's amazing what happened to Sarah and Anna, yeah? And what Heather said back to me was so memorable that I wrote it down. This is what she said. She said, the more I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, I found myself thinking how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. She said, praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on unconvinced people has reminded me that all of my own problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended and stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. She said, thinking evangelistically has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. She said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root 
in a thankful heart. <coughs> Excuse me. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And this is such an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you, how you and Christ are now part of the same team. Can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? You are the kingdom of God. When your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy about that. You see, the devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in healthcare, no Christians in business, no Christians in further education, no Christians in the media, no Christians in sport. The devil would be delighted if all Christians lived in cozy Christian ghettos. Why? Because the devil knows that in John 17 verse 15, Jesus didn't pray, Oh, Father, please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No. The devil knows in John 17 15, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world because you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow morning, Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work tomorrow through you. So that's benefit number one. Benefit number two then. Benefit number two, we will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. The Bible says we are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. At the gym, I asked a friend of mine called Chris uh, a question, and he says to me back, what have you been up to this week, Adrian? I said, um, Chris, I've been preparing a talk to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? I said, yeah, Chris, please do. He said, um, tell, them, tell them not to say, the good book says this and the good book says that because people like me, Adrian, he said, are cynical. Cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion. But most people I meet, Chris, are positive about relationships. In fact, most people I meet, Chris, actually have quite a high opinion of Jesus of Nazareth as a person. I said, the great thing is, Chris, that what's on offer is not religion. What's on offer, Chris, is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing. I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, well, that depends. I said, on what? He said, on where I am. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when I get on my bike and I'm cycling out of London, and I get into the Surrey countryside, and I can see the hills and the trees and the grass and all the countryside around me, 
I cannot bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes, but I have absolutely no idea what it is. And you know, I really felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ, and God is on your side, and the resources of heaven have been placed at your disposal. We are promised when we do speak up on his behalf, God's going to back us up, and we'll be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help us. Okay, benefit number three. We will see ourselves making a difference. Now, you love this. Oh, you love this. You love it when the God of the Bible, the God who is really there, when the real God, when God's love comes into somebody else's life through you, you love that. Yeah. It's as we go that Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus said, look, I haven't come, Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, look, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. The apostle Paul said that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Jesus said of his own mission, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Now, we need to remember that Jesus made a deliberate conscious decision to hang out with unbelieving people. His reputation was that he was a friend of sinners. People said, oh yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone's talking about him. Here's what we've heard about him. He's a glutton. He's a, he's a wine-bibber. Jesus from Nazareth, yeah, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about him. Because Jesus did make a habit of deliberately spending time with irreligious people. So as soon as we even start praying for that skeptical person in our world, we're already pointing ourselves in the direction that Jesus pointed himself. We're already lining ourselves up with the mission that Jesus has already lined himself up with. And as we do that, as we prioritize unconvinced people, all the resources of heaven swing in behind us. And God himself is cheering you on. It's just as clear when Jesus says to his followers in John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I remember back when I first became a Christian many years ago, how wonderful it was to think that God the Father really did send Jesus the Son. But here we see in the same way, it's a sumptuous, marvelous, delicious thing to see that in the same way that the Father sent the Son, Jesus is now sending you and me. Jesus says as much when we overhear Jesus praying for you. This is a great moment. Jesus praying to his Father about you in John 17, 18, Jesus says, as you have sent me into the world, Father, 
I have sent them into the world. In the same way, in the, to the same extent that God the Father sent Jesus the Son, now Jesus sends you and me into our circle, our friendship circle of not yet Christians, whether that might be in your office or your family or your neighbors or whoever it is that you're connected to who does not yet know Christ. As much as the Father was with Jesus, the Father is now with you. Okay, that's three benefits. We've got two more. You still with me? Okay, very good. Next benefit. Next benefit, excuse me, you'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Now, Philemon verse 6 says that it is through sharing our faith that we become increasingly aware of how great our inheritance in Christ really is. For example, here's a, a story of a couple in our church in Reigate. They're called Richard and Jill, and Richard and Jill uh, were active in sharing their faith with this couple called Paul and Helena Hanley. This is an old picture of Paul and Helena, and when this photo was taken, neither Paul nor Helena would have called themselves Christians. Uh, Paul at this time was a 35-year-old atheist. He had a successful career in the city of London. He was an insurance broker. Helena is a nurse at East Surrey Hospital, and Paul and Helena have got a very nice house in Surrey. They've got three sons, and Paul is one of those people that you sometimes come across in life who is actually quite strongly opposed to Christianity. He's got a problem with Christianity. He's against Christians and Christianity. Now, today, Paul and Helena are both Bible-believing Christians. In fact, Paul is the pastor of a church in Cornwall. This is actually the second church that Paul and Helena have led. And if you are anything like me, you wonder to yourself, how does that happen? I mean, really, you know, in real life, how do you go from being a 35-year-old atheist insurance broker to becoming a Christian, and now you're leading a church? In fact, they've had two churches. I mean, how does that actually happen? Well, this is what happened. One afternoon, Paul and Helena were going for a walk in the park in Caterham, where they live. And as they were walking along the path, they see this couple from our church, Richard and Jill, who are sitting over there on the grass. Now, remember I told you that Helena is a nurse at East Surrey Hospital. Jill from our church is also a nurse at East Surrey Hospital. These two are colleagues and friends, and Jill from our church has been active in sharing her faith with Helena, Paul's wife. Paul is aware this is the Christian couple. So what he decides to do is to blank them. He pretends that he hasn't seen them. So he's walking along uh, the road, the path, and, but there's just been too much eye contact. So he has to kind of do that thing where he goes, oh, <laughs> almost walked straight by you. <laughs> How are you doing? Didn't see you there. How are you? And as Paul and Helena walk over, they discover Richard and Jill are sitting down having a picnic. Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. And so the social rules of Surrey dictate that they have to sit down and have their picnic with Richard and Jill. And Paul's like, oh, I can't believe I'm stuck with the Christians. How did this happen? But then he's, do you know what? If they do start talking about whatever it is that they talk about God and Jesus and all that stuff, oh, 
I'll just, I'll just have some fun with them. I mean, Paul thinks, I'll just be able to point out the factual errors, the logical inconsistencies. I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks. And wouldn't you just know it? Two minutes into the conversation, Paul's wife Helena asked Jill from our church a question directly about Jill's Christian faith. And for the next hour and a half, the four of them have this full-on, no-holds-barred discussion about God and Jesus and Christianity and church and whatnot. And at the end of this discussion, Paul and Helena go back to the car. Paul's walking back, holding his empty picnic boxes. And he says... You know, I remember thinking at that point, I knew that it would be easy to win, as Paul sees it, to win the conversation against the Christians. But Paul remembers thinking, do you know, it was even easier than I thought it would be. So he gets to the car. He puts the empty picnic boxes in the boot of the car. He closes the boot. He walks to the driver's position, gets into the driver's seat. He said, I put my key in the ignition. And then I heard myself say these words. Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm ever so sorry, darling. I lied. It was more. In fact, it was a lot more. It was this much. Well, there then followed a full and frank exchange of views between a married couple. <laughs> and then that kind of dies down. Paul drives home with Helena, thinking... What was that? I mean, what, what, what was that? What, what, what just happened? He drives home. When he gets home, he just feels this compelling urge to go into his study. He goes into his study. He gets out a pad of blank paper and starts writing a list of everything that he has ever done that he thinks was wrong. Now, when I met Paul, I asked him about this. He said, it took me three days I said, why did it take you three days? He said, I had 35 years of stuff to write down. So anyway, now you already know the end of the story because I've already told you the end of the story. The end of the story is that Paul and Helena both become Christians. In fact, they even end up leading this church and this other church. So the first time I ever met Paul and Helena was on their very first Sunday at church. So I was on the welcome team. So I'm standing at the door, wherever it is over here, and I'm just sort of looking at people walking up towards the door. And I think, oh, I don't recognize this couple. They're three sons. I wonder who they are. I introduce myself. They introduce themselves. And I say, oh, do you know anyone here? Oh, yeah, we know Richard. Oh, I know Richard and Jill. Um, do you mind me asking, Paul, um, is this your first Sunday here at our church this morning? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is our first Sunday at any church. We've just become Christians earlier this week. I thought, what a great answer. Anyway, um, so I then ask Paul, do you mind me asking Paul how that happened? And then he told me the story that I've just told you. And at the end of the story, as you can imagine, I'm absolutely desperate to ask Paul, Paul, what did they say? What did Richard and Jill say to you that afternoon in the park in Caterham, Paul? What did they say that made you want to confess about the credit card bill and made you to then spend three days in your study writing down the list of everything that you've ever done that was wrong? What did they say to you, Paul, in the park that made you want to leave atheism and become a Christian? What did they say? And he said, oh, he said, it wasn't anything they said. 
I said, oh, uh, well, what was it then? He said, oh, it was them, he said. It was something about them. Paul would now say, it was Christ in them. You know, the funny thing about that conversation, Paul's only been at our church for 10 minutes. It's his first Sunday. Nine years later, Paul Hanley was the pastor of our church. And he says that what was really happening was that the real Jesus, who really is alive, was working through Richard and Jill to create within Paul a desire to be pure. Paul wanted to feel clean. He wanted to feel washed. He wanted to feel cleansed and renewed. Now, he'd never had this feeling before. Paul and Helen have found there's more to life than being happy. Paul and Helen have found there's a real God who really loves you. But just think about what happened from Richard and Jill's point of view. What Jill did was she was active in sharing her faith with her colleague, Helena. But Jill learned all about the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. She learned something about God through what happened that Paul, even though they weren't talking about this stuff, somehow Paul felt this conviction and became a Christian. And she found that out by doing evangelism, by sharing the gospel with Helena. So if Jill was here, and we had the microphone and said, Jill, would you like to just share with the good people here in Darlington what you've learned? She would say, oh, I've learned that Philemon verse 6 is true. It's not just in the Bible, but I've experienced it. Through being active in sharing my faith, I've now got a fuller understanding of every good thing that I have in Christ. Okay, fifth and final point this morning, we will become more like Jesus. How so? Well, Jesus drew people to God through many means. One of the ways Jesus did that was by storytelling. Yeah? So, as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, don't be surprised if you find you get more and more pleasure through storytelling. People love to listen to Jesus' stories. The common people heard him gladly. Now, somebody could hear that and say, yeah, I get that. But thing, I think you might be missing Adrian. Somebody could say, is Adrian, I, somebody could say, I don't really have a story, like a really great story, like a dramatic kind of before I was a Christian, dramatic story, and then after, you know, because, you know, somebody could say, I was brought up in a Christian family. I mean, I, I've always been to church, and, you know, I, like I was only a child when I became a Christian, so I don't really have a dramatic before and after story, somebody could say. Somebody could say, I don't really have a testimony. Now, it just so happens that my wife, Julia, is the most effective personal evangelist that I know. Julia has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. Yet Julia grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian family. She, of all people, could so easily say, well, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? Does she say, yeah, 
I was abandoned by my parents at birth. I was abandoned by my parents at birth, and I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it was when I was running and hunting with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And about that time, I discovered voodoo. No, she doesn't say that. The truth is, folks, that Julia did not grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. Before she came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. About the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. So what is her 45-second faith story? What does she say? This is what she said. As a child, I worried a lot, even though really I had nothing to worry about. Like many people, she says, I was a born warrior. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible, and I became a Christian aged 13. I was baptized aged 13, and when I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever, and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried, but I felt God's presence, and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university. I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. I wonder whether the band would like to come and join me. Folks, one day, there will be so many people in heaven that the Bible says that no one will be able to count them. There'll be too many. By this stage, there'll be at least one person from every tribe, tongue, language group, ethnic group around the throne of God in heaven. Now, that means that from today, 2023 onwards until that day, it must be the case that millions and millions and millions of people are going to become Christians in order for that to actually happen. Folks, you and I get to be part of seeing that happen. We get to see a time in the period of the history of the world where millions of people are going to meet Jesus and come to know him personally. We get to play our part in the most wonderful thing that is going to happen in the future of our world. And we get to have the time of our lives in the process. We get to enjoy that journey. Right now, we are already on the most wonderful adventure. Shall we stand together? Let's stand Let's sing. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do in the future. We thank you for how you're going to gather people from all over the world. There are people who are going to become Christians here in Darlington, and they're going to make a decision to go to the ends of the earth. They're going to learn languages. They're going to translate parts of the Bible or the whole of the New Testament into languages that have never been written down. There's people in this area who are going to go to the Wycliffe Bible translators. They're going to translate scriptures into mother tongues, And people are going to be reached all over the world as a result of what happens here. Lord, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. And this church is going to play its part, not just reaching people in this town who don't know you yet, but reaching the uttermost parts of the earth. We know this is going to happen. It's not wishful thinking. We've read the book of Revelation. We know how the story ends. At least one person from every tribe and tongue around the throne of God. We thank you, Lord, for this building block that we're laying this morning. We pray, Lord, that you'll make it foundational to every single one who's part of this church, that we would enjoy these benefits, that we would benefit from sharing the good news with others just as they benefit from hearing it. 
We pray, Lord, that these seats will be filled by those in this town who don't yet know you. Help us to give away the gospel, to give away the good news. We thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.